Okay, Rupert, uh, welcome to the summit. Uh, to get started, for, for anybody that doesn't know you out there, could you just tell us a bit more about uh, your, your background and the work that you've been doing the past few years? I'm a biologist and I started out doing research at Cambridge on the development of plants. Then I worked in an agricultural institute in India, the International Crops Research Institute. Um, so a lot of my earlier part of my career was doing, dealing with plants. When in India, I got interested in uh, spiritual practices. Before that, I was an atheist. Um, and I then ended up spending a couple of years living in a Benedictine ashram in South India, run by someone called Father Bede Griffiths, uh, an English Benedictine monk, um, living in a very Indian style. He wore orange robes, we chanted mantras, we did yoga and meditated every day. Um, it was on the bank of a sacred river, the River Corbury. Um, so um, during that period, I wrote my first book, A New Science of Life, a new theory of how life might work through morphic resonance, kind of memory and nature. And since that was published in 1981, um, I've been working in areas of scientific research which are beyond the normal limits of science. I deal with phenomena that most scientists don't want to think about or don't want to think about in public, like telepathy, premonitions, animals giving warnings of earthquakes, um, telephone telepathy in humans, um, and also on morphic resonance. So these areas of rather unconventional scientific research are the main thing I do. But I've always been interested in spiritual practices, and, and at least since I lived in India and um, have explored a range of spiritual practices. And what I'm excited about at the moment is that there are now a lot of scientific studies of spiritual practices that show that they are basically make people happier, healthier, and live longer. So the science illuminates the value of these practices, uh, in some cases makes it easier to understand what they're doing. And my two most recent books, Science and Spiritual Practices and Ways to Go Beyond, are really about this convergence of the science and the spirituality. Um, and not only is this happening in our culture in general, but um, it's something that's been happening in my own life because I'm both a scientist and a spiritual explorer. Um, so these two books are more personal than my other books in the sense that they deal with personal aspects of my own life. Fantastic. Um, so your first book, or not your first book, but one of your books is called The Science Delusion. And this outlines some of the dogmas of modern science. I'd be curious to ask you, Rupert, which of these dogmas do you think are most harmful, um, most harmful to, to human beings and, and why? Well, I think they're all harmful, actually, because I think they're false and they're taken to be true by most people. Um, I think the first dogma, nature's inanimate and mechanical, which has been the foundation of science since the 17th century. Um, to start with, people just said, let's treat nature as if it's inanimate and mechanical, machine-like, um, just as a method to simplify what science did. But people then came to think of this as the truth. So if we think of nature as completely unconscious, uh, the only conscious beings in the entire universe from this point of view are ourselves. For some mysterious reason, consciousness has emerged in brains, and especially human brains, and animals no doubt have some, but we've got more than anyone else. Um, this leads to the idea we live in an unconscious, purposeless universe, and we're the only conscious beings in it, or the only ones that matter. Um, and it means we can do what we like. Uh, it gives us a sense of enormous power over nature, we can do what we like with the earth. And the result of that is the ecological crisis with no restraint on human ambition or because nothing else really matters. Um, but it also means a, a terrible sense of alienation from the rest of the natural, natural world. And that's a feature of modern societies. Uh, that I think the second most harmful dogma uh, which is related to that, is the idea that our minds are nothing but our brains. Uh, minds are what brains do, is the materialist slogan. And so this philosophy of materialism, the idea that the only reality is matter, um, and matter is basically unconscious, 
um, doesn't really explain our own consciousness. In fact, that's why in the philosophy of mind, the very existence of human consciousness is called the hard problem, because there's no way you can solve this problem from within materialism if you assume everything else is unconscious. That means that our minds are shut up inside our brains. Um, we're all isolated from each other. We're not connected with the environment or with each other except through physical contacts. And this again leads to a tremendous sense of isolation and uh, separation. And we know from many studies that isolation, alienation and separation are what lead to depression and their symptoms of it. And I think the fact that depression is the characteristic mental illness of modern industrial societies is not a coincidence. I think it flows from these worldviews. And the point of spiritual practices is that they give a much greater experience of connection. And one of the things they do is protect against depression. People with spiritual practices or religious practices are much less prone to depression on average than those without. Wow. Um, so the, the, the two books that you've wrote recently are Science and Spiritual Practices and Ways to Go Beyond. Um, it seems that in these books, you're emphasizing the importance of direct experience. It, these seem to be very important when it comes to spirituality. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about the importance of direct experience and maybe why you chose to, to spend the past few years writing these books? Well, you see, I think that what puts a lot of people off religion, and after all, most people, at least in Britain and in much of Europe, have been put off religion. I mean, church attendances in, in England are now about 5% of the population. It's a bit higher in Ireland, but not much. Um, and, you know, over most of Europe, we're, we're dealing with a situation where the majority of the population have become disconnected from their traditional religious roots. Most of them were, most of their ancestors were Christian and some were Jewish. And the same happens in the Jewish world too. There's a rise in alienation from traditional religion. And this is partly because of um, the idea that religion, particularly Christianity and Judaism, are primarily about belief. It's, do you believe this? And then there's the atheists portray this as a system of believing ridiculous things. Who'd want to believe all these childish fairy stories and myths and stuff from the Stone Age um, when you've got modern science? So that's the usual attitude. Uh, it's about belief. And most people don't really understand what the beliefs are about. They think Christians believe in a god who's got a white beard, sits on a cloud, created the world machine, pressed a start button at the moment of the Big Bang, and then more or less retired to some undefined space outside nature where he's just supernatural. Um, that's sort of belief. Uh, the fact is that people don't believe that. That's a, you know, the atheists don't believe in something that most Christians don't believe in. Um, but when, so arguing about belief is extremely unproductive, but what religion uh, and spiritual practices are primarily about is experience. All of them start from experiences. The Buddha didn't become enlightened through doing a PhD. The Buddha became enlightened through years of meditation sitting under trees. And Jesus didn't become aware of his direct intimate connection with God the Father through going to a rabbinical seminary. He had an overwhelming mystical experience at the moment of his baptism when he was immersed in the River Jordan by John the Baptist and came up out of the waters again. And I think this kind of immersion by baptism uh, produced a sort of near-death experience through drowning. And uh, so I think Jesus had a, an overwhelmingly powerful mystical experience and then went on a 40-day vision quest fasting in the wilderness, again, about um, experience and uh, direct insight, not studying books or looking into belief systems. And I think the main reason that most people practice religions, um, going to church, visiting temples for Hindus, praying in mosques for Muslims, going to synagogues, celebrating Yom Kippur and Passover and so on for Jewish people. Um, the main reason people do this is not because of belief. It's because the practice is very helpful. 
singing and chanting together with members of the community, going to an ancient sacred place, having rites of passage for, for naming of children, for marriage, for deaths, for funerals, um, having practices like fasting during Lent or Ramadan, going on pilgrimages, um, praying, um, singing uh, and chanting together, observing festivals, um, um, uh, times of collective celebration. All of these have uh, the sense of connecting people with each other, with tradition, with, a form, with forms of consciousness higher and beyond our own. So all of these are why people do these religions. Most people, if you ask them, practicing Christians or practicing Muslims or practicing Jewish people, if you ask them what are the beliefs of, that they have, they're probably going to be a bit hazy on this. I mean, that's not what it's about for them, but it's what atheists portray it as being about. And um, that, I think, leads to a lot of misunderstanding. So I think that for many people who've been alienated from traditional religious practices, which means most people in Europe and um, a lot of people in North America, though generally a bit more religious in North America in the traditional way, um, that this leads to a sense of alienation, separation, depression, etc., And that spiritual practices are something that anyone can do. You don't have to believe you have to do it and then you have experiences it leads to it opens you to experiences of connection so to meditate for example all you need to do is find a quiet place and have a basic practice like observing the breath as in mindfulness meditation or having a mantra as in mantra meditation and having a regular practice um, you can do it at home it doesn't require a prior belief system um, and through doing it, you have an experience of exploring the nature of your own mind. You learn more about yourself, the way your mind works, and so on. And have periods in which uh, you have a much greater sense of peace and connection. So meditation is the practice I did first myself. I, I started that in around 1971 or something like that with transcendental meditation. Um, and what appealed to me then, because I was an atheist at the time, was that it was about experience and practice, not belief. And that's still the case today. And, and in fact, it's interesting that many of the new generation of atheists, like Sam Harris and um, Alain de Botton, the atheist philosopher, um, are in favor of spiritual and religious practices. They realize that atheists are missing out by not having these practices that old style atheists like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett are just against every kind of spiritual practice. Um, but the new style atheists um, recognize that actually these practices have great benefits. And so the debate now um, with the new generation of atheists is not about whether spiritual practices are valuable. They agree that they are, and many of them have their own. Uh, the question is, it, what these practices reveal about the nature of ultimate reality, or do you need to have a view of a form of consciousness beyond our own to do the practices? So it's a much more sophisticated and interesting discussion that's going on now. Very, very much so. Now, do you think it's possible for people to enjoy all of the benefits of these practi practices, even when they're not tied to a religion or a specific belief system? Well, it depends on the practice. In these two books, I, each book I deal with seven different practices. And some of them, um, you don't need any belief system, uh, like meditation, as I've just said. And funnily enough, pilgrimage, which is undergoing an enormous revival all over Europe at the moment, where the iconic example is Santiago de Compostela in Spain, which had something like 330,000 people walking there on foot last year, compared with 1,000 in 1987, when the modern form of the pilgrimage got going. Enormous growth. And there's a growth of pilgrimage all over Europe. In Britain, the British Pilgrimage Trust is reopening the ancient footpath pilgrimage routes and has just launched, um, it'll come as the lockdown ends, it's launching a series of one-day pilgrimage routes to all 42 cathedrals in England. In Ireland, there have always been pilgrimages in Catholic Ireland. Um, 
but they've usually involved going in a bus with a parish priest to a holy place. But now um, there's always been an element of actual doing it literally with feet on the ground, like in um, um, the, uh, the great in Croke Patrick, the holy mountain. But now there are groups in Ireland opening up the long distance footpath routes. There's a website, Pilgrim Paths in Ireland, uh, which is restoring the sense of walking through the landscape. Now, again, a lot of people who go on these pilgrimages are not committed Catholics. Um, uh, in fact, some of them are atheists, agnostics, a lot of people who are spiritual but not religious. And the British Pilgrimage Trust, which sometimes organizes guided groups of pilgrimages, has as one of its slogans, bring your own beliefs, um, because it's not primarily about uh, believing something, it's primarily about the experience of walking through the landscape with a goal, a destination, a purpose, which is what makes you a pilgrim instead of a tourist. You're connecting with that place and with its tradition. And you go with an intention, you want to give thanks for something, you want to ask for something. Uh, whereas a tourist going to these sacred places um, has to pretend that they're primarily interested in art history, which mostly they're not. And all they can do is take photos, they can't ask for a blessing and they can't share a blessing when they get home if they haven't had one themselves. Whereas traditional pilgrims, there's much more to it, it's much more satisfying. But again, it's about experience and not about belief. On the other hand, um, one of the, another practice, um, petitionary prayer, the kind of prayer where you ask for things, um, does it require a sort of belief? Because you can't pray to God or to one of the saints or to the Blessed Virgin if you don't believe they exist, or if you believe they're nothing but figments of the imagination inside human heads. Um, um, I suppose you could still pray under those conditions, but it wouldn't be terribly convincing to yourself or anyone else. Um, so people who pray um, start by invoking the spiritual being, the conscious being to whom they're praying. Their prayers begin with invocations. Our Father who art in heaven, hail Mary, full of grace, om namah shivaya, um, and so on. They, they, they start with a invocation. And so people who pray in a petitionary way have the idea that there are some beings or entities or conscious forces out there to which they can connect consciously. Sometimes it's ancestors, sometimes it's saints, sometimes it's angels. Uh, and for Christians, uh, it can be, and when it's praying directly to God, it can, it can be praying to God the Father, as in our Father, who art in heaven, God the Son, as in prayers addressed to Jesus, or God the Holy Spirit, as prayers addressed to the Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, inspire us. There are various prayers that you can pray to the Spirit. So there are many forms of prayer. Um, and many people who pray find praying enormously helpful. And it has great health uh, benefits. Um, but it does require at least this belief that something beyond ourselves. And most people think that. I mean, it's only the most hardcore materialist atheists who think that, who really truly believe that our minds are nothing but our brains, that we have no free will, um, that consciousness is an illusion. That is a belief system. So it's not as if atheists don't have a belief system and other people do. One of the problems with atheists is they have an extraordinarily strong and often very dogmatic belief system, um, which says our minds are nothing but our brains, the earth is the universe is nothing but a machine, and so on. So let me just finish this thing about prayer by contrasting prayer and meditation. I think that prayer and meditation are almost opposite in what they're doing, and but opposite not in the sense they contradict each other, but they're complementary to each other. In meditation, what you're doing is withdrawing attention from the outer world uh, first. You sit quietly, close your eyes in most forms of meditation. Um, and you, you withdraw your attention from the world around you. And then by concentrating on the breathing or the mantra, you withdraw your attention from the, the constant stream of thoughts that's going through your mind, uh, the internal dialogue, ruminations. And we know that this um, stream of thoughts that goes through all our minds when we're not doing 
anything in particular, is associated with the activity of regions of the brain called the default mode network. The default mode network um, means that we have this constant internal dialogue, worries, anxieties, fears, fantasies, etc. By having an alternative focus through a mantra or through a mindfulness of the breath or sensations in the body, we withdraw the energy from those thoughts. They can still go on, but we can watch them pass like clouds going through the sky. The mind then is more like the sky, which can contain all thoughts and all these things. And the thoughts are like the clouds going through the sky. We, they're still there, but we no longer engage with them. We're no longer completely engulfed in them. Um, so meditation is about getting to the very ground of consciousness itself. And in the traditions where it's practiced, in Buddhism, Hinduism, contemplative prayer in Christianity, um, Sufism within Islam, and mystical Judaism, um, wherever people practice uh, this kind of practice, they believe that by getting to the ground of our own consciousness, we contact the ultimate consciousness which underlies all things, that we become connected with the ultimate consciousness of the universe, which Hindus would call Brahman. Atman, the inner source of our own consciousness, is none other than a, a, a part of Brahman, the, the ultimate uh, consciousness. So meditation is about withdrawing from the concerns of the world and our everyday lives and connecting with the source of consciousness. It's like breathing in. Whereas petitionary prayer is the opposite. You start by connecting with this greater consciousness through an invocation and then um, turn your attention and the intention of this prayer to things that concern you in the outer world. Someone you know is sick, you're praying for them. Something you're afraid of that's going to happen in the next day or two, you pray for protection or guidance or help. Um, worries about business or study or so, praying about that. Most prayers are about very mundane, non-spiritual things. They're about things in our everyday lives. And they bring the sense of connection with the spirit to, to our everyday lives. So. Um, for many people, including me, that's extremely helpful. The problem with just meditating is that it withdraws from the concerns of everyday life and it can become a kind of escape mechanism. Um, the point, the problem with just praying is that it can be too involved with everyday life and doesn't give that kind of space of much more spacious sense of being and restfulness, uh, which we all need. So I myself see these as complementary, like breathing in and breathing out. Prayer is like breathing out because it's connecting with the outer world. Meditation is like breathing in. It's withdrawing attention from the outer world and bringing it within. Um, I myself meditate in the mornings and I pray in the evenings before I go to bed. So I, I find these complementary practices. Mm. So for these two books, Rupert, you've studied 14 spiritual practices in depth. Mm. I'd be curious to ask you, have you noticed any common characteristics that all of these practices share? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and I asked myself that and, and, and the, um, at, at first sight, they seem to be very, very different. I mean, meditation is about sitting quietly, you know, observing the mind itself. Whereas, one of the chapters in, in Ways to Go Beyond is about sports, because I think that in the modern world, for many people, sports is a spiritual practice, even though they wouldn't call it that. I think it's the main way in which millions of people enter altered states of consciousness. Um, and the reason I think that is that in sports, um, you have to become completely present. Now, a lot of spiritual practices about about coming into the present. Um, and about when you come to the present, you shut down the default mode network, the worry, rumination, etc. That's all about resentments for things in the past, worries about things you haven't done, things you ought to be doing, what you should do next, what you didn't say to somebody, what you ought to say to them, and so forth. Um, but um, if, if you're playing sports, say a mountaineer who's sort of 50 feet up a rock face um, without ropes, I mean, it, as I've talked to mountaineers who do this, they say, you know, you're, 
totally in the present you know you you can't be worrying i mean they, you, it's where the next finger hold is and um and the most extreme uh, forms of this are in free solo um, uh, um uh, dangerous sports for example a few months ago in london i met Freddy kuna who's the world champion free solo highline uh person and highline you know like a tightrope with a sort of band stretched across enormous drops he's done it over a thousand foot drop over a gorge in british columbia with a waterfall below and between skyscrapers in cities and he walks across these highlines without safety harness you know one slight slip or loss of balance and he's dead um and i asked him why he does it and he says that for him it's a spiritual experience and it's so powerful that it's almost addictive uh, even though he's risking his life of course the whole point is he's risking his life that he says that the fact it's so dangerous he practices first with safety harnesses of course um but the the total concentration the total absorption in the present means that all worries disappear and it it becomes a sense of total presence there's a, a kind of unification with the consciousness of all things and for him this is a mystical experience um now at a lower less extreme level you know someone in the middle of a football game or someone's passing in the ball you have to know where the ball's coming to who who's where which defenders are where who you could pass it to you have to have complete awareness which it means there's no time left for worrying about what your girlfriend said yesterday that pissed you off or um whether you paid the gas bill or whatever i mean you come into the present and so so i another spiritual practice i mentioned which again was baffling to see how they fit together is animals a lot of people find animals very helpful and i think the reason why so many people keep dogs cats and other animals or ride horses is that they don't have default mode networks that work like ours they're much more in the present than we are cat sitting on your lap purring as you stroke it is perfectly content to be exactly where it is in the present and if you pay attention to the cat it can bring you into the present now if you're riding a horse it's totally in the present you come into the present through it if you're with a dog that wants you to throw a stick or a ball for it to retrieve it's looking eagerly at you sort of ready to go it's totally in the present waiting for this to happen and it's much harder to worry about things when you're in interacting with animals like that and then there are forms of practice which involve beauty the contemplation of beauty as in flowers and in beautiful art and architecture now what do all these have in common um well at first sight almost nothing um but i then was trying to think about what's the ultimate nature of reality um what's the uh, traditional theories of the nature of ultimate consciousness with which spiritual practices connect and one thing that becomes clear is that there's a, if you look at the mystically inspired theologies of different traditions they have a great deal more in common than sets them apart um and what they have in common is a sense that there's a threefold nature of ultimate consciousness or reality in the hindu tradition it's called sat chit ananda and sat means being um there's an aspect of the ultimate divine brahman a god um one aspect of god is is conscious being sustaining all things the being of all things depends on this ultimate being and this ultimate being is consciousness but that consciousness by itself has no content so the chit is the the contents of consciousness the ultimate being is what knows things but it has to have things to know in order to know to know it has to have the known so chit is what the hindus call names and forms nama rupa um all the names and forms in the universe all the sh- everything has shape structure order and we can think about things give them names our minds have shape structure and order that aspect of consciousness is chit um and then ananda is about the flow of things which is joyful ananda means joy or bliss so it tells us the ultimate consciousness is about the ground of being a source of form and order 
and a flow or change. And that is indeed the structure of God according to the Christian tradition, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, which is the official Christian view of God, and the creed, which is said in many denominations every Sunday or at almost every service, um, is a statement of belief in God as a threefold being, not a man with a white cloud. Now, nothing like that. It's, it's a, a sophisticated understanding of the inner nature of God's consciousness. God the Father is the ground of being, like Sat in Sat Chitananda. Um, in the Old Testament, he reveals himself to Moses, who says, who are you? What's your name? He says, I am who I am, or I am that I am. I am is, you couldn't get a simpler statement of conscious being in the present. Um, so it's ultimate present conscious being. And then the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, um, as in the creed it says, through him all things were made, um, is a bit like Platonic forms and uh, in the Platonic philosophy. It's the principle of name and form. Uh, it's the, that which gives shape to all things in the universe. And then the spirit is the principle of flow and change. It's what we call energy in science. The principal metaphor for this is speaking the, the, in the Christian and Jewish traditions. Um, God the Father is the speaker. And as I speak now, um, there's an outward flow of breath, which is why you can hear my words. That's the spirit, the, the breath, the wind, the, uh, the flow. And there's the pattern and form and structure of the words. And if I have just flow without words, there's a kind of a structureless white noise. If I have words without flow, they're silent in my mind. And when the two combine together, they manifest in the world. And so the idea is that the whole of nature has this structure, that it has the being that sustains it all, the conscious being, the flow of energy that makes everything act and change. And and forms, the logos, the four names and forms which give everything its structure, meaning, connection, um, uh, relationship, and so on. Now, with this model of ultimate consciousness, which we can find parallels to in, in um, mystical Judaism, in Sufi philosophy, in Islam, uh, in Buddhism too, um, then when you come to look again at the spiritual practices, um, you find that some spiritual practices are more about connecting with the ground of being itself. Meditation, for example, is about coming into awareness of that consciousness which underlies all things, which underlies our own minds, which underlies all our thoughts and perceptions. It's becoming aware that there's a part of our consciousness like the blue sky, which is or the night sky, which can contain all things, which underlies all our individual experiences, perceptions and thoughts, but which is the ground of being. And through meditation, that's what you come into contact with. Then sports, which are all about movement, change, um, and playing football, skiing downhill at great speed, you know, the thrill of speed, which many sports give. Um, uh, the, the sports then are about the enjoyment of physical skill and movement. Um, and those, I think, bring us very much into contact with the flow of the spirit. Um, so does music and dancing. Um, so they're spiritual practices that connect with that aspect of the spirit. And the enjoyment of beautiful architecture, art, stained glass windows in Chartres Cathedral, you know, looking at flowers, um, the, the beauty of nature, um, that sense of the beauty of form um, is something that connects us more with the Logos aspect of the Holy Trinity or with Nama Rupa in the Hindu version of it. So I think these different practices connect us with different aspects of ultimate spiritual reality. And uh, that's why it's helpful to realize that all traditional views of ultimate spiritual reality recognize that it does have different aspects. It's not some kind of undifferentiated blob or some single state. Uh, it's, it has this internal differentiation uh, right at the very heart of ultimate consciousness. That's really interesting. It seems a lot of them at least seem to override this default mode network that we commonly find ourselves in a lot of the time and um, pull us into the present moment. Now, I'm, 
I'm curious for people listening to this that haven't actually read your books before, they're probably sitting at home listening to this and thinking, okay, this is great, but what are some of these practices? Like, so I think it'd be good now if we could do a quick run through of the, of the 14 practices that people could just start thinking about how they could use them in, in their life, if that, if that makes sense. All right. Um, this has to be very, I, mean, I don't have much time for each one, but um, right, in, in the first book, Science and Spiritual Practices, um, which I think I've got right here, um, this, uh, the first um, practice here is meditation, which I've already talked about, and this is something anyone can try, and probably uh, many people listening to this have tried. I mean, it's an amazingly large proportion of people who have learned how to meditate and do meditate. Um, the second is gratitude, and this is a very fundamental practice in all religions and in secular philosophies of positive living, um, that feeling grateful for what we have is the opposite of feeling entitled uh, or feeling uh, or taking things for granted. And studies by positive psychologists in a purely secular context have shown that people who are grateful are usually people who are happy. And they're not happy, uh, they're not grateful because they're happy, or they may be grateful because they're happy, um, but they're often happy because they're grateful. Uh, being grateful, practicing gratitude, makes people measurably happier. Um, and I think because gratitude is part of a flow, a lot of what we have, our very life itself, the food we eat, we didn't grow all that ourselves. I mean, more people are growing their own food now than before, perhaps, but the vast majority of what we have and do, and it depends on other people, on nature, on the sun, on the earth, on the rain, on the weather, on the fact that the solar systems and the galaxy, the galaxies in the universe um, are in lives. Uh, we don't deserve our own lives. We didn't ask to come into being. It's a gift. Uh, so much of what we have in our lives is a gift. And the degree to which you give thanks partly depends on your belief system. If you think nature is inanimate, mechanical, etc., then you might feel grateful to matter or the laws of nature, but it's not as effective as if you think that the whole universe has a conscious source and that um, nature's alive and that we're part of a living being and that, uh, um, that there's a flow of life through us that's continued through the whole of nature and the universe. Um, but nevertheless, even for the most extreme, hardcore, materialist atheist, there's a lot to be grateful for. I mean, the people who make the food, the fact you were alive at all, the fact we have great health care, uh, the fact we have science uh, and, and technology, which improves many our lives in many ways, and so on. Anyway, the practice of gratitude is something that anyone can practice. And one way is giving thanks before meals, a very traditional way. And the simplest form is to hold hands around the table in silence. So everyone can give thanks in their own way, according to their own tradition or belief system or non-belief system or whatever, but just a pause for giving thanks. Um, and every day making a practice of thinking of things for which you're grateful and, if, if, and maybe writing down a list. These are enormously helpful practices. They cost nothing. Um, then there's uh, connecting with nature. And for many people, uh, this is already an important part of their lives. It's always been a huge part of my life. Um, and when we connect with nature, we realize we're part of a much larger system of life and flow and energy, and it gives a perspective and sense we're connected with something greater than ourselves. And relating to plants is uh, the next chapter in this book, and it's a sense of spillover from relating to nature, but um, uh, it's very important for me. I'm, I started out as a botanist, as I mentioned, and um, for me, looking at flowers and gardening and being with trees is a huge part of my life. And um, you know, I have a kind of daily connection with plants. And so, in fact, to most people, gardening is one of the most popular hobbies, um, in, in at least in Britain, and probably in Ireland too. Um, and 
house plants lots of people have house plants even if they don't have gardens and lots of people have cut flowers it's a multi-billion pound industry the cut flower industry because there's a kind of sense of connection with plants then singing and chanting um, are ways of bringing us into resonance with each other through singing together which is why they're part of all traditional cultures and religions um, my wife Jill Purse teaches workshops on singing and chanting and I've seen over and over again how groups of people, strangers, come together and over a course of a weekend workshop through chanting together they, there's such a sense of connection, of bonding, of not just with each other but with a more general sense of flow in the, in the world that people leave sort of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, it's, uh, and uh, so singing and chanting is uh, again something everyone can do and one reason I like going to church myself is that it means uh, I get to sing with other people at least once a week and people who don't go to church don't have to go you don't have to go to church to sing you can join a community choir or something but it's more difficult to arrange it it's much easier if you just go along and there it is happening anyway um, so singing and chanting um, and then rituals, uh, all religions and all cultures have rituals and rituals uh, connect us with the other people doing them. You know, the Jew, Jewish people celebrating Passover, Christians celebrating Holy Communion, Americans celebrating Thanksgiving dinner, a national ritual, um, and all the other rituals of our lives, including rituals of greeting and parting. You know, the, the usual forms of greeting involve some blessing or um, and indeed you know every time we say goodbye uh, we're giving a blessing and goodbye is a shortened form of God be with you um, so uh, you know that's a ritual of parting that we take for granted but we can make these things more conscious and when we do we find that rituals connect us with each other and they also connect us by a process I call morphic resonance with all those who've done them before. So they connect us with our ancestors, those of the past, with whom we need a sense of connection uh, unless we want to be detached, alienated, uprooted uh, beings, separated. But that sense of connection is very important. And the final practice I discuss in science and spiritual practices is pilgrimage, uh, which I've already mentioned. Uh, it's undergoing a tremendous revival in Europe at the moment. And is a wonderful way in to uh, going on a spiritual journey. I mean, it is literally going on a spiritual journey. Uh, and I think that's one reason it's so popular. And for people who live in Britain, the British Pilgrimage Trust website called BritishPilgrimage.org now has well over a hundred different routes all over Britain um, to cathedrals, ancient churches, holy wells, uh, megalithic uh, stone circles, long barrows, um, um, ancient trees, and so on. Um, so there are all kinds of pilgrimage, um, and um, there's going to be a pilgrimage near you, wherever you live in Europe. Um, in America, it's somewhat different, and, and I think they're the main focuses of pilgrimage of what in the ancient world would have been called sacred groves now secularized as national parks. Um, um, so anyway, that's, those are the practices in science and spiritual practices. And in the other book, um, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, um, the first practice I discussed there is sports, which I've already talked about, which is a way that people can come into the present. Uh, as a, a spiritual practice without realizing it. Even watching a football match, being part of a crowd, um, is connective. You feel your emotions go up and down with the rest of the crowd, sort of, ooh, uh, disappointment, oh. And, you know, there's this fluctuating in shared emotions uh, with the involvement of the immediacy of the game. What's happening in that moment brings you into the present and into connection with other people. Even through watching it on TV, you can get something of that. Um, so sports as a spiritual practice is the first uh, chapter. The second one is learning from animals. I've already talked about that. You know, animals can help bring us into the present. They can also give us a sense of humility because in many ways animals can do things better than us. You know, they can have a better sense of smell. They're more agile if you watch gibbons leaping from 
branch to branch. I mean, that's way beyond anything any ungainly human could do. You know, when you watch birds soaring in the sky, you know, it's something people have always dreamed of, you know, being able to fly. And I think that's why spirit beings like angels are portrayed with wings, because it's a kind of human fantasy to be able to fly as freely as a bird. Um, and now, of course, we can with through technology in aeroplanes, but they're pretty lumbering, cumbersome things compared with the flight of birds. So learning from animals is, uh, is, is um, the next practice. And then let me get the order right. Um, fasting. Um, fasting is practice that occurs in all religions, in Lent for Christians, in Ramadan during the daylight hours for Muslims, on Yom Kippur for Jews. Um, Hindus have many fasting days. In shamanic cultures, they often fast before vision quests or rites of passage. Um, and fasting is something where we know a lot about it physiologically, scientifically. Um, it leads to the burning up of fat cells in the body and um, ketosis. Um, ketone bodies in the blood, amino acetic, acetoacetic acid, acetone, and beta hydroxybutyric acid, BHB. Well, BHB is psychoactive, fasting is psychoactive. BHB is closely related to gamma aminobutyric acid, GABA, or gamma hydroxybutyric acid, GHB, um, which is a neurotransmitter. Um, both of them are neurotransmitters in the brain. Um, so fasting is psychoactive and it often makes people have clearer minds and more vivid dreams. That's why people fast uh, so they can pray or meditate better. Uh, it also has enormous health benefits for people who are in reasonable health anyway. It's not advisable for anorexic people or for uh, people on multiple complex medications and so on, at least without medical advice. But for most people, fasting is very beneficial, both spiritually and physically. And uh, as I, I explain a few basic how-to steps in my book, uh, I myself do it every year during Holy Week before Easter for four or five days, um, just tea and water, no food. Um, so I find it personally very helpful and it has the advantage, like most spiritual practices, of being free. In fact, you actually save money because you're not uh, buying food. Um, so fasting. Uh, then the next in order is cannabis, psychedelics and spiritual openings. I think in the modern world, many people undergo spiritual openings through taking psychedelics. And in fact, I think that's why for many young people, these are an important spiritual rite of passage, even though they're often taken not with a spiritual intention, just out of curiosity or something. Uh, they often have a spiritual effect. Certainly they did for me. I mean, when I first took LSD, which was in 1970, I think, um, I, I was an atheist being raised as a scientist, you know, um, and this experience completely blew me away. I mean, it revealed realms of consciousness I'd never suspected and I'd never been taught about in my scientific education. Um, it led to an interest in the nature of consciousness that triggered off my taking up um, transcendental meditation. I wanted to meditate because I wanted to explore consciousness because I got interested through psychedelics. So I think that psychedelics can act as uh, they can be dangerous, of course, and I'm not advocating everyone takes them, but for many people, it's simply a fact that they provide spiritual openings. And in some traditional societies, they're used as parts of rites of passage, like in ayahuasca uh, in the Amazon region, in many shamanic cultures. And now in the psychedelic churches of Brazil, there are several psychedelic churches. Most, the one I've come across in person is Santo Daime, which is a form of psychedelic Christianity, um, where the, the people taking part in the ceremony uh, have a kind of communion where you drink, people line up one by one, and the person presiding over the ceremony who guides it gives them a, a sort of chalice full of um, this brew, this um, psychedelic brew. And it, the, uh, the group undergo a kind of journeying together, singing together, um, 
and it's a, a ceremony, a psychedelic Christian ceremony. Um, it starts, surprisingly enough, with everyone saying together the Our Father and the Hail Mary. It's a psychedelic Catholicism. And this has a huge number of followers in Brazil, and it's uh, underground chapters of this church exist all over Europe now. Um, some people describe this as a reverse missionary movement. Um, uh, European countries sent, in South America, Catholic missionaries to convert people who were in shamanic cultures. And, and when the Catholic missionaries got to the Amazon, where lots of these cultures take ayahuasca, um, it was only a matter of time before you get a kind of fusion of these cultures and the emergence of psychedelic Catholicism. Um, so Santo Daime is this psychedelic church. Um, and for people who think, you know, religions just sort of, you know, services sort of boring and nothing really happens, <laughs> try Santo Daime. Um, so, um, so it's, I think that there's a chapter there on psychedelics as spiritual openings. Then I have a chapter on powers of prayer, about petitionary prayer, the most common form of prayer um, that I've already talked about, asking for things. Um, then holy days and festivals. Um, all religions, and indeed all secular cultures, have special festival days. Even in the atheist Soviet Union, they had festival days like May Day, which was turned into this great festival of communism. Um, and holy days and festivals are times when we can celebrate together. And holy days, by definition, are holidays. I mean, holiday means holy day. That's the same word, really. Um, uh, if you have a holiday, um, then people don't have to do their normal work. And that means they can spend time together, singing, dancing, celebrating. Um, and the, the, the Jewish people have the strongest sense of this with the observance of the Sabbath, Saturday for Jewish people. Um, the prohibition of work on the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. And for Christians, it's got shifted to Sunday for Muslims to Friday. Um, but the prohibition of work make, means it's a holiday. And the purpose of the holiday is so that people have time to give thanks to God, to worship God, to sing together, to have fun, to feast together, to have a joyful time together, to make love. Um, um, and that's the purpose of these holy days. And what's happened in secularization in the modern world is that the idea that you shouldn't be able to work on Sundays or the shops should be closed or there should be any restrictions on trade is seen as some ridiculous relic of a superstitious bygone age. And what we should be having, according to the proponents of secularism, is 24-7 culture, where there's absolutely no difference between Sunday or Saturday and any other day, where it's all just commerce, social media, entertainment, um, you know, shopping malls, etc. Um, well, um, that has an enormously harmful effect. You know, it can lead to burnout and, and, um, um, and now secular studies by academics in the US and elsewhere have shown that having one day a week where you don't do social media, have a technological Sabbath where you don't work, where you have time and space to do other things, has enormous health benefits, both physical and mental. And so they sort of reinvented the Sabbath on a scientific basis. Um, and the great festivals in each tradition have a similar thing of collective celebration. We still have that in most of Europe with Christmas, where people gather together, and it's a time of celebration, festivity, and being together. Um, in traditional Christian countries, there are lots of these festivals, you know, Ascension Day, the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels, All Saints Day, a whole, of course, Easter and, and uh, the festivals connected with Easter. Um, a whole series of saints' days and festival days throughout the year, which are times for celebration. The Protestant Reformation uh, cut down on these. The, the Protestant reformers thought Catholics were having much too much good, uh, easy time of it and, and um, were, um, you know, having all these days off when they could be working and doing something productive. So they suppressed a lot of these traditional Roman Catholic festivals. So in England, for example, with its Protestant background, Ascension Day, uh, the Thursday 
after um, you know, the Thursday, 10 days before Pentecost, 40 days after Easter, Ascension Day, most people don't even know it's happening. Um, but in, in Catholic countries on the continent, it's, it's a public holiday. Um, so, um, and All Saints Day, most people in England don't know it's happening. All they know is the, the eve of the festival of All Saints, Halloween, All Hallows Eve, is celebrated by children, but the festival itself, which is the festival of the dead, has been hollowed out. All Souls Day, November the 2nd, is huge in Mexico, the Day of the Dead. And um, uh, so one of my points here is recovering these festivals is, gives a kind of structure to our lives. I myself, on All Souls Day, um, November the 2nd, always go to a requiem in um, our local Anglican church or in Catholic church or Catholic church. Uh, where you can put names down on a list and the priest will read out during the Requiem Mass the names of the people you name who've died. So I always remember people who've died in the previous year and dead members of my family, people who've passed. And it's a way of remembering and connecting with the ancestors, which in all cultures is considered essential to personal and social health, to acknowledge and recognize those who've gone before. And here's a festival when you can actually do it, is the tradition to do it. And recovering that tradition is of great value, I think. So then that's holy days and festivals. Um, again, building those into our lives. And again, this is something that's about collective celebration. Some spiritual practices like meditation, are more individual. These are more collective. The whole point is being able to do things together and our spiritual well-being, as well as our social and mental well-being, depends on our social connections. We're social beings and people who are isolated become depressed and even suicidal. So these are things that are very good for our health and well-being. Then um, the final practice I discussed is cultivating good habits, avoiding bad habits and being kind. It's what used to be called cultivating virtues. Virtues are good habits. Avoiding vices. Vices are bad habits. And being kind. Um, because unless there's an overarching ethical framework uh, for spiritual practices, then they can become self-indulgent. They can become things that make you feel good. Some new age spirituality is of this kind of individual feel good uh, thing. And it works. I mean, it does make individuals feel better. But um, all traditional religions and indeed secular humanism, this is not just a religious doctrine, but a humanist one, a secular doctrine too, that um, uh, to live in an appropriate way uh, involves thinking about other people and helping others and doing something that makes the world a better place to live in, that heals our relationship with the natural world and with other people. And so, um, this, the avoidance of bad habits, the cultivation of good habits, and the practice of being kind, it's, it's a virtue because it's, uh, the point about virtues is their habits. It's not just a sudden one-off random act of kindness, that these are, the point about virtues, you can cultivate these. The ancient Greeks were, made this very clear, and this is, again is not just Christian, it's a universal idea that you cultivate good habits, that you should form good habits. Um, being considerate, being um, uh, to others, uh, having good manners, uh, being thankful, um, um, and so on, and avoid bad habits. Um, you know, uh, um, and we, you know, if people are eating too much and uh, they get into bad habits of addictions and so forth, and these are clear, everyone agrees, these are not a good idea their bad habits and so there are ways of interestingly the best way of getting out of really bad habits is through some kind of spiritual practice which is why Alcoholics Anonymous and the various recovery 12-step recovery programs have a spiritual dimension something that Russell Brand is very keen on in his book Recovery um, he talks about his own experience of recovering from alcoholism sex addiction drug addiction and so on um, and how the spiritual dimension is so important in that. So the spiritual practices enable us to overcome bad habits and overcoming bad habits makes us more open to spiritual practices. So really the uh, overarching 
final chapter of, of, of practice is, is about this ethical dimension. Fantastic. This, is, this has been absolutely fascinating, Rupert. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, that's all we've got time for today. Um, before we go, uh, where can people find your work online and, and your books? Well, my books, uh, at the moment, during lockdown, you can only buy online, really, but you can get them from Amazon. Um, I have nine different books by myself. They're all available. The Science Delusion is my most fundamental critique of the scientific worldview, and a new edition of that book is published on June the 25th, fully updated. Um, the, my website, sheldrake.org, has a huge amount of information on it, including all my scientific papers, over 90 technical papers in scientific journals, they're all there if anyone's interested in those details. Um, and I also have a YouTube channel with lots of talks, dialogues, um, uh, discussions. Uh, and again, you can access that through sheldrake.org. I also have Facebook and Instagram pages. And again, the links are there on my homepage at sheldrake.org. 